Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. And this week, I'm featuring an episode from the series Important, Not Important, a new series that analyzes the world's most pressing questions and dives into ways to make us feel better and make a difference. In just a minute, we're going to play episode 116 from the series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. (laughs) And Seth Rogen. (laughs) So if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Which focuses on the best ways to reduce global poverty. Quinn Emmett, a self proclaimed chief evangelist for humanity, spoke with FP about the series and how it came to be. So I want to start off with. Your, your kind of your MO, right? That you open each podcast with. It's science for people who give a shit, which I love. What do you mean by that? You know, it took a little while. I mean, this whole thing kind of came together because I, my day job is I'm a screenwriter and I do a lot of sci-fi and science and technology. And, you know, I realized I was seeing a bunch of big news, good stuff and not so great stuff from sources I'd curated for myself to keep on top of my writing. Uh, and I, was like, oh, I have friends who care about this stuff. I'll slap it together in a little email newsletter. And here's the five or 10 big things you missed. And people enjoyed it. And then as it grew sort of organically, I was like, oh boy, I better clean this up and formalize it a little bit. And, you know, it eventually turned into, and it took me a while to kind of narrow down the idea of, and I'm sure you run into this all the time, you know, who who is this for? What is the value I'm actually trying to provide to people with this? And it's a hard one because you're like, climate change, it's for everybody, or COVID, we're all trapped at home, you know? And we don't just do one specific thing. It's sort of this prism of like all the big things that are make or break here and in the next 10, 20 years. And I really realized there's so many wonderful places that do the, for example, climate 101 or, or, or this is what COVID is, things like that. But at the same time, there's just a growing every day for one reason or another, unfortunately, audience of people who are already motivated about these things for one reason or another. Again, climate, COVID, cancer, artificial intelligence, food and water, poverty. I realized my focus could be, this is exactly what you're looking for. I need a place that's not going to just be 101, but is going to give me the updates on these big things I'm already paying attention to, but more specifically, the like measured and measurable things that I can do about it. And so that's where I kind of realized about a year and a half ago, the best way to frame it is this is for people who 
give a shit. Um, and that could eventually be a whole lot of folks with the way things are going. But at the same time, you know, we I'm happy to pass people off and recommend, you know, these are the resources for this, or if you need to be convinced about something, this or that. But I'm not spending my time on that. I'm spending my time for the people who are already marching in the streets or they've lost someone or they've lost a home or a sense of place or whatever it might be, or they've been in poverty or they know people or they're maybe they work in, you know, we get a lot of CEOs and investors and university people and things like that, or NGO directors. So you already give a shit and you're going now, great. I'm someone who's invested and I'm interested in doing something about it. What can you provide for me? I was wondering, are there people who are interested in science that don't give a shit? Look, it's gnarly out there. I don't fault people for being like, yeah, no, I know, or I'm interested, but I just don't have the mental or emotional bandwidth for it right now. So they want to, but I get it. You know, I got three kids and they're incredibly privileged and they're healthy and they have food and internet. Um, And there are some days where I'm like, I, I can't think about this stuff right now. I got to get these, get I got to pack some lunches and do my own thing. I, I get it. So I think it's less about people who don't give a shit and more just, it's a lot. I mean, you know, every political season, everyone's pulling you in 7,000 different directions, you know? So I, I understand that it's hard. I try to operate from a place of, of empathy on that front. And we'll be here if you want to come back. Yeah, that's very useful because it's very, with these big issues, and I feel like this in particular just myself with climate change, right? It just feels so overwhelming. Like it is so global, so huge. And you're like, what can I do? You know, a little, little old me. It can be sometimes... The more you read about it, the more kind of sometimes helpless I feel. And so it is, you know, I think listening to your podcast, it's so great to come away with it, you know, small tangible steps to at least feel like, okay, here's what I can do in my my little corner of the world. Yeah. I, again, I, I try to operate from a place of empathy. It's really gnarly to listen to two people or, or more talk about climate change for an hour. And then it just ends and you're like, well, maybe I'll just close my eyes and drive through traffic now because that was very sad. <laughs> yeah. And it can be that way with cancer and things like that. There's also some incredible stories about the progress we're making on these things. This episode about Give Directly. I mean, the impact you can have with a few dollars. And I know that sounds like 1980s Susan Sarandon, but like, not Susan Sarandon, is it Suzanne Summers? Like for a dollar a day? You know, we have so much more data and we are able to operate in these incredible ways with the digital payment infrastructure in Africa, where a lot of where GiveDirectly does a lot of their work. It's incredible. And it's also just uh, comes with self-awareness, you know, and, and what I love what they shared with us about, you know, look, it's not about wells. Like one day you might need water, one day you might need food, one day you might need shelter, like give people the agency that helps them feel better to do things. And that will also build up and then Maybe they'll fight for education in their town for young women or whatever it is. And that helps climate change. So, you know, all of these little things do add up. And, and we try to focus on those action steps that help just help you feel better and also ones that will drive systemic change because that's the thing that's really going to get this done. Where does the name come from? Important, not important. I think it was when I just realized that at the time, a lot of folks, really intelligent, uh, curious invested folks I knew were getting news from like Facebook and turned out that it's not so great. It was just like, you would look at the headlines on any given day. And this is when Buzzfeed was exploding and all this different things. And the headlines were just like Hollywood, this and this and that, and this and that. And so it actually started with the world's like lamest Squarespace homepage where I was like important. And this is the shit that matters. And underneath I put not important. It was like all this other stuff. 
So to turn a question that you often put to your guests, which I think is a brilliant question, you know what's coming, to turn it to, to you, why are you vital for the survival of the species? God, this is a day I've feared. <laughs> you, I thought you would have time. a ready answer. You asked this to everyone. No, this is the putting my head in the sand and going like, no one's, no one's ever going to notice. <laughs> I have tried to be as public as I can and as transparent as I can about my journey of self-awareness about my own privilege, which is like I was born healthy and had food and I look like this, which is like it looks like every explorer conqueror has ever been. And I've never wanted or needed for anything. And a lot of folks are very happy to call that conversation uh, virtue signaling. And I call it well, if I'm just going to be able to afford to have a podcast and a newsletter and have this life and have healthy children, then I need to also use that privilege, not just be self-aware of it, but utilize it as much as I can and saying, okay, then how can I share this mic? So uh, we've had 122 guests and I think uh, it's 49% people of color. It is 60% women. I think it's as of this week, it's like 77% a woman and or person of color is the guest. And, you know, I just, no no one needs to hear more from people like me. Like, first of all, that's every other podcast. And also like, that's how we got to where we are. You know, Congress needs to be vastly more diverse. So if I can use that privilege and, and any uh, financial means I have or to push other people in that direction towards candidates like that, like uh, that are working with Run for Something, which is like the most incredible organization. Great. If it's supporting, uh, you know, give directly isn't working with people that look like me because people that look like me are mostly fine. So great. If I can help point more resources and more people that look like me towards things like that to elevate more voices and lives of people of color, wherever they are. Great. So it's just, I guess, trying to utilize that as much as I possibly can. That was Quinn Emmett. And here now is episode 116. What happens when we just give people money? Welcome to Important, Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for people who give a shit. We give you the tools you need to feel better and to fight for a better future for everyone. Uh, the context about a specific issue facing everybody right now straight from the smartest, most effective people on earth and the action steps you can take to get involved and to support them. Our guests are NGO directors, uh, scientists, doctors, nurses, journalists, engineers, activists, farmers, CEOs. We even had a reverend once. This is your friendly reminder. You can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Second, you can also join tens of thousands of other smart folks and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That is all of the most important science news of the week, uh, how we can help you think about it and what you can do about it, of course. Third, uh, new thing uh, out there, very exciting. If you are interested in working directly on the front lines of the future, doing something impactful uh, every day in ranging from clean energy production uh, or installation to maternal health or mental health or antibiotics work or carbon removal or any, any of these things, uh, electric vehicles, 
you can now head to importantjobs.com, uh, where I'm very proud to say we've got an incredible number and selection of uh, curated companies and organizations that are doing that work uh, and their best roles for you guys to find. And, and for those of you who are listening, if you're looking to uh, hire some incredible uh, human to bolster your team, to take you to the next level, if you're a legacy company that needs to hire a sustainability manager for the first time or measure your carbon footprint or someone who's skilled in working with uh, sustainable consumer goods, whatever it might be, battery technology, uh, there is no better community than you could uh, get in front of than our shit givers here. So again, that's at importantjobs.com. Uh, folks, this week's episode, boy, is it, it's simple, but it's also really profound. And it asks why we should just be giving people money why it's the single most effective way to help people change their own lives and to also erase global poverty along the way. Our guests are Caroline Tetti and Michael Fay from Give Directly. And I'm very excited for you to hear their story and find out how you can get involved and contribute as well. Let's go. My guests today are Caroline Tetti and Michael Fay. And together... I want to know why we should just be giving people money. Caroline, Tetti, uh, and Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Quinn. Tetti, uh, as you did request that we refer to you, and, and Michael, uh, could you just tell us real quick uh, who you guys are and what you do? Yep, I can go first. So my name is Caroline Tetti. I'm here in Kenya, Nairobi, and I work for Give Directly. Today is actually, uh, I'm actually marking the fifth year since I was hired here. Wow. Yeah, my role is uh, recipient advocacy for our global operations. And what that means is um, monitoring, safeguarding, and risks associated with the cash that we are delivering to beneficiaries and also being a representative and a voice for our beneficiaries uh, in whatever way that I can. And this work has never been more exciting. Sure, I imagine. Uh, Michael, how can you measure up to that? Oh, I can't. I'm, I'm, just a, I'm just a recovering PhD who had the incredibly creative idea of giving people money to make them less poor. Sure. I'm the co-founder and president of Give Directly, uh, and have spent the last two years building organizations that help move money to those in most need. Awesome. So we do like to start with one vital question uh, to set the tone for, for this conversation. It is, if you could answer... Why are you vital to the survival of the species? I'm going to start with Tetti. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah, up, Tetti. Yeah, like Queen. That's uh, that. That's that's not an easy question because you know what the world is a great. Um, it's a huge place to be in, and uh, to imagine that you are that person who can create the change that the world is uh, looking for is such a big calling. However, I believe I fit in that little knob where one human being is required to create change in the world today, because I have a past that has experienced the life of some of the people that we are giving cash today. I have enjoyed the privilege of getting out of that situation. And I have had also the opportunity to be able to interact with the world in different ways in which I feel like you know, is, is something that I can share with the world, whether that is in terms of information, empowering them, and facilitating the process of creating change and where we are today in delivering cash to people living in poverty. That's so 
Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Uh, Michael, once again, good luck. <laughs> I've, I've, I've lost this game. <laughs> <laughs> I would say we, we live in a world with enough resources for everyone to meet their basic needs. And yet we also live in a world where a billion people can't do that and live in extreme poverty. And extreme poverty is extreme. Mm -hmm. It's people living on the equivalent or less than $1.90 a day, which if you take a second to think about, it's almost impossible to imagine, certainly for those of us on this call. So we live in a world with those resources and yet such poverty exists. We're helping at some level, at its most basic level, fix that. And we're just playing a small role. We're just really a vehicle for people that want to transfer some resources to others to get them above the poverty line to do so. And what I say is giving shouldn't come from guilt. Like it's actually a remarkable opportunity to think about it. You can give another human a dollar a day, which used to be the price of a cup of coffee. Now it's like a sip of your cup of coffee and take that person above the mm -hmm. poverty line. And I think that's transformative for each life. And as a generation and as a planet, why not take the step? Why not take the gamble of trying to end it? Yeah, and you know, Michael, that is that is something that is really, really powerful that, um, you know, as I grew up, I didn't have any idea of there is so much wealth out in the world. And, you know, it's really been humbling for me interacting and seeing the reality of how wealth redistribution can have such a huge impact on people's lives and just having you know an opportunity to see how the common resources the, 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 the like you know natural resources that have been extracted and all the work that lots of people have done have generated so much wealth yet we still have so many people living in abject poverty poverty that sometimes you know you cannot explain like i have seen a woman cooking stones for her children totally. and and you wonder like doesn't somebody just have 10 dollars to enable her to get food to the table for mm -hmm. her children but Teddy, it reminds me of a, of a story. You say you didn't realize how much wealth there was. And you probably know this story. This was in a slum in Nairobi. I think we were together. Uh, and one of the recipients came up to me and he says, you know, you've really changed my view of life. And I said, oh, tell me. And he said, for, for decades and decades, NGOs have been coming and giving us stuff and they'll give us soap and they'll give us this small thing. And, you know, it was helpful but it wasn't much. And I just figured they didn't have that much money, these NGOs. And now you come and you give us all this money. And I think to myself, why isn't everyone giving us money? So now every time an NGO comes, give us money. that group of people says, well, why don't you just give us the money? We'll buy it. We, we can buy soap here. We'll be okay. Wow. <laughs> How true. That's amazing. How true. Um, it seems it seems so fundamental and so and and so basic, and yet it seems like it it, it hasn't been so far. Uh, and I and I, I want to get into that stuff. So thank you both for for sharing that. I, I appreciate it. Here's why I wanted to uh, have this conversation today, and and where I hope we will we can go with it. So uh, at least in especially in uh, the the Western world and the global North, uh, there's uh, been a fair amount of dark humor, joking, uh, at least since uh, Trump was elected in, in, in 2016, that, you know, this this year is the worst, but can't wait to be done with with this year, right? And then two years later, we all look back on fondly on 
2017 or 2018, because at least there wasn't a pandemic in that year, right? Um, it's all about perspective. But mm. you don't have to be a, you know, a Steven Pinker completist to to understand even very broadly, right? Superficially, that that life has generally improved in the past quarter century uh, on this only known habitable planet in, in the galaxy. But we definitely still have a long way to go. And we've also got this ticking clock that we've never really had before, right? So we have these big systemic problems, these global problems with these intensely local and varied ramifications. Um, but we have made progress, right? So um, I was looking through uh, one of my favorite websites, Our World in Data. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that organization uh, out of Oxford. They, they do a fantastic job. Um, it's just, it's basically data for making progress. And they talked about how, um, you know, 300,000 women die from pregnancy-related causes, but that's mm -hmm. declined from, from half a million. And the share living in extreme poverty is 10% is globally, but that's down from 21%. And the number of primary uh, school-age kids not in school, I believe, is 60 million, but that's down from 110 million. And then looking at things like malaria, it's like almost 4% of all kids die before they're five years old, but that's down from 9%, which is just wild. Many of the items we talk about on this show, and I've tried to focus on more and more, come back to people just not having the means, these mm. very basic few things to survive. And so I have been so blown away by, by the incredible effectiveness of giving people money since I, since I began to, to try to understand it better and where it's going during a pandemic and after, and, and I really want to help this community understand how they can most effectively contribute. What does it mean? I want to talk about what it means to live in poverty globally in 2021 and, and why has that changed over time? What are the primary reasons why people still don't have the money for and clean food, air, water, and shelter in 2021? Could you just give us some context for that? You can start from one the policy landscape. And you want to ask ourselves, do we have the right public policies that respond to the needs of the people living in poverty? And even as you ask that, you know, it's been decades, like there has been a lot of investment in aid with the hope of reversing the situation of poverty for millions of people across the globe. But aid has not been that effective. And it might, one of the reasons could be because Aid effectiveness is just a question which people have not yet embraced to get the right answer to. That so much has been given, uh, and I will talk about Africa, for example, where I'm coming from. There has been so much that has been pumped into Africa to respond to the situation of poverty through aid and uh, external support. But it's not getting better. Like when you say like percentages have gone down, you also want to think about if they went down from 2017, population, world population has actually risen, which means in absolute numbers, we could actually be talking about more people living in poverty. And, uh, you know, the, the, the nature of poverty is not even getting better. It's getting worse. Thank you. That's, that's, that's helpful to understand. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it, it's time for us to ask questions whether 
what we have been doing year in, year out in terms of reversing the situation of poverty is responding to the actual need of the people. And the answer lies in the paternalistic nature of aid. That, you know, yes, we see people who are poor. Yes, we have the numbers. But then we also make the assumptions that we have the answers to their problems. And I like the fact that you've asked about water as a basic need. Why do people still don't have water? Why do people still don't have food? And that is because we have resources that are purposed in the wrong way. And wrong way in the sense that basic needs will remain basic. Water will remain basic, food will remain basic, shelter will remain basic. But the basic requirements for different people vary over time in quantities also. That one person requires food today, but right next door, another person requires water. And then next door, another person requires shelter. But then we come with this whole bundle of health, of wealth and policies and say that everybody in this community should be given water or everybody should be given food. And sometimes we give the wrong food or the wrong water. I, I will close with an, uh, you know, an example of a situation sometime in Mozambique in a place called Beira, where you know, orphaned children were in dire need and they needed support. And there's this Italian uh, donor who came with truckloads of food and those, that food was expired. Like there was yogurt and there was cheese. And I can tell you, they don't eat cheese. They don't even know how to eat cheese. But you've carried cheese there and it expired. And you suspect maybe the time taken to transport this uh, food across the shores might have contributed to the expiry. They are perishables. Like that's unbelievable. That's money right there being wasted or people being given what they don't need or People being given what they need, but now expired. No, that's 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 profoundly uh, illuminating. Absolutely, that that gets to the root of it pretty quickly, which is you know different people might need different things on different days and in different moments in their life. So just showing up to build wells. I think about this idea of, and, and then Michael, I I can see you're just taking furious notes over there. But uh, I, I think about this idea of like you know of this progress we've made. And you're right. It's important that whether we're talking about relative percentages or absolute numbers, you know, I imagine there has been some low-hanging fruit, but then you really have to get into what is each person's lived experience and what are they lacking. And the seems like the best way to fix that is to allow them to make the decision for themselves on how to deal with it. My, Michael, please go. Sorry to interrupt. I mean, the, the big surprise is that each person has their own individual lived experience. And as it turns out, their own individual needs. Like if you go into a village and say, let's find the one thing that everybody in this village needs, like, good luck. Sure. <laughs> right. There's I mean, go to your 10 neighbors and say, we're all getting the same Christmas gift. Let's just agree on yeah. it. It's not going to happen. You know why? Because people need different things. And the person that knows what they need uh, is often the person themselves. Mm -hmm. Quinn, I, I was going to go back to your question of what, why is there still poverty? So wh when I was uh, doing the PhD, there, there was an entire literature on kind of what causes growth, what helps poverty reduction, what is the cause of poverty? And th there's a debate, right? Is it the geography of countries? Is it the government? Uh, and so on and so forth. The reality is, at an individual level, it doesn't matter. Because do you know whose fault it is not? the individual and the recipient. If you are living 
in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, you are poor because you are living in rural Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. And we don't need to debate the cause of kind of the structural thing. It, it is useful and it is absolutely something to talk about at a macro level, but an individual level, it's not relevant. And it's not relevant because if I were to give that person money, that person would become less poor. And you don't need a PhD for that. There's no math behind it. Poverty is a lack of resources. If I give you more, you have more. It's obviously poverty can be complicated and have other other aspects, but it is easy to forget this kind of structured, finite aspect of the problem that giving people money makes them less poor. Now, a lot of people bring a Western lens to it. If you walk down the street of New York City, you might see people on the street and they might be asking for money and also drinking out of a brown bag. And poverty in the U.S. is more complicated. You, you may have interactions with mental illness, substance abuse, other aspects. Uh, and that's not to say cash doesn't work because there have been studies in the US where cash works, but at some level, it's even less complicated uh, in the places that we're working, uh, which is it is not associated with any of those things I mentioned. You are poor because you are born there. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to sort. Yeah, you know, I was just reading, there's this fantastic black American writer, uh, author, poet, the historian uh, Clint Smith, who just had a new book came out, and I just finished it this morning, uh, called "How the Word Was Passed," and and he he usually writes for the Atlantic. Just tremendously smart human being. One of those you read the book and you're just like, you know, I'm just not going to do any more writing. <laughs> it's I give up. But you know, he 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 made this point, and you talked about you're poor because you're growing up, you're born into, and you're growing up in in rural, you know, Democratic Eastern. Congo, and he talks about how, you know, there's this thing. It, basically, the 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 book is this exploration uh, through I think five or six different places throughout America that are part of the real story of of how this the slavery operation worked here and how it got here logistically, uh, and how it worked here from from plantations to prisons to all all of the above. And in one of the last places he goes, he goes back to Senegal and uh, is talking about how it's important to understand that there isn't a, it's not just there isn't a single, and I'm calling you from Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia, there isn't a single moment in America's history where the economy wasn't based on free labor and, and marginalized peoples at the very mm -hmm. least. And, but it's also a zero-sum game because that those people uh, that built America, black slaves, were taken from countries, which means those countries had their ancestor or ancestry of, of workforces removed from them. Mm -hmm. And so you have to understand that the, those people weren't able to build up and spend, you know, generations now, 250, 300, 400 years, building on the things that we've been able to build on here for, for free, which we've enabled. And it's, it's important, I think, especially again, for people in the West to, to constantly remember that when we're saying like, well, why are we giving so much, you know, whether it's the U.S. giving aid or uh, when, when George Bush was sending money for AIDS work or whatever it might be? It's like, well, because we, we took all of that mm. and that that matters. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Your point about giving too much is actually an interesting one. So I'm not sure if you've seen these surveys, um, but if you ask people, do you think we're giving too much abroad? you'll often get the answer, yes. Mm -hmm. I forget the exact numbers, mm -hmm. but a majority will say, yes, we are giving mm -hmm. too much. And they say, great, 
how much do you think we should be giving mm -hmm. in aid or abroad? What percentage of, kind of global GDP do you think right. we should dedicate yeah. this? And people say, I don't know, 5%, 10%. Say, great. The actual number is closer to 1%. Right. We spent a lot of time getting to 0.7%. Sure. So if you think we're at 10, sure. we're at 1, we're not doing mm -hmm. that much. Mm -hmm. uh, and it would not take a tremendous amount to actually end poverty. Two, two facts for you talking about the world getting better or worse. Um, if you look at two graphs, I, I think there are one graph, two lines. It's quite powerful. So the poverty gap has been falling um, for some time. It, it has likely increased in the last year with COVID, but before that, it had been falling. What the poverty gap is, is the amount of money that would be required to get every person above the poverty line. And it's theoretical, right? So if you're living at $1.20 and the line is $1.90, would we assume 70 cents. And we just add that up over all the people. So the poverty gap has been falling. The amount of development assistance, which is the aid that we send abroad, has been increasing over the same time. So those are two great facts. Poverty gap falling, aid increasing. For the first time, about 15 years ago, those two lines crossed. And the amount of aid we send is more than the amount that would be required to close the poverty gap. Where we are today is that the amount of aid is about double what would be required to close the poverty gap. So if you just close your eyes for a second and imagine we just took that money and we could magically put it in the hands of those under the poverty line, poverty would be over. That, I think, is both provocative and motivating. Now, of course, the world is more complicated. I don't know exactly how far below the poverty line each person is. I don't know exactly where mm -hmm. they are. But as a starting point, I think it's a really important one. Because if you reframe it for what should we do with our resources to what should we do with the global resources, the poorest resources, imagine those resources weren't our, the donor communities to spend, mm -hmm. but they already were distributed with the poorest. Mm -hmm. What would we feel comfortable going to them and saying, you know what, I'd like to have some of your money back. Say, well, why do you want my money back? I'm going to buy you a cow in the US. It's going to be a beautiful cow. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to ship it back to you. And we're going to spend three times the amount of money it would have taken you to buy a cow locally. Right. Do you know how much it takes to ship a cow? Right. Right. That's crazy. Sure. But that is still what a lot of it is. You know, what Michael is saying is um, almost reflective of some of the things that I see here that is done using aid. And, uh, you know, you sit back and ask yourself if we've been spending twice what we need and we still have poverty, then what has happened to all that aid? And I see examples of where some of that aid has gone that money has been put to drill wells for people living in poverty because somebody sat somewhere and imagined that these people needed water. But then even the person who has been given the responsibility to dig that well doesn't actually dig a well. They go into a riverbed that has dried up and they dig a hole because they're going to reach a very shallow aquifer. A donor will be told that a well was dug. I have seen this. Nobody has told me this. Now, that person will have sunk in there between $30,000 to $40,000 for a well that will not work absolutely zero. They will also report that they have used $50,000, $70,000 
for that same well. So there is money going to waste in terms of what has been spent on the well and money going to waste in terms of the real well that is actually supposed to be helping people. So you ask yourself, where is aid going? Why isn't it helping people? Some of it is just not spent the right way. Agreed. And it's not for a lack of good intent. Exactly. I think it is hard to do well. A lot of aid has done well. There are bed nets, Mm -hmm. deworming. Um, There's certainly aid that has been wasted. And the question is, not only how do we do better, but how do we empower the recipient versus making choices for them? Um, Quinn, you mentioned this. It's You mentioned water, hunger, and it's it's sort of interesting, which is that's exactly the way the sector has split, mm-hmm. right? There's an organization dedicated to hunger. Sure. That's the objective they solve. There's an organization dedicated to water, shelter, and so on, and that's what they solve. But that's not the way people make decisions. Mm-hmm. They don't say, you know what? husband and family, this month, we're only going to focus on hunger. (laughs) I know you're sick, but next month is health month. We've decided that we have a mandate. That's the best, Michael. It's March, no more water. That is the best example. But the beauty of cash, it's like every NGO in one. We do water, we do health, we do education, we do it all. But we let the recipient choose. We know that your work is so effective. And like you said, that this image of, of aid increasing and and the poverty line, and now we're 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 spending double to what it should theoretically take. And and the the analogy again, it's it's not quite apples to apples, is but it, but it's certainly related. Is this idea of and again certainly in America, it's this idea of like everybody needs whatever I mean quote unquote needs to be healthy two thousand calories a day, and, and Americans waste X amount, mm-hmm. right? It's like it's it's way up. We have everyone's like we got to make this much food to feed. 30 years, 10 billion people. It's like, we can, we already do. That's not the problem. You know, it's distribution, it's waste, it's yields, yada, yada. But so so much of it's waste. It's it's an incredibly complicated systemic problem. But you talk about that image and those numbers being provocative. I want to talk about, just for a moment, about storytelling. Stats don't always, as we know, move the needle. Um, stories, whether it's Tati's personal story or or something like that, uh, seem to have the most effect. Um, I mean, storytelling is is what we do, right? That's We've been doing it for hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of years. I think about how, and, and we're wrestling with this here, as we, part of the U.S.'s COVID relief was, was enhancing uh, this child tax credit, which could totally change lives for Black Americans and, and Brown Americans. Um, it is giving families money to, to start with, to pay for these necessities as they see fit, but also to possibly even uh, put in a savings account or do things like that that could, you know, let these families have access to to uh, compounding interest, which is usually goes against mm-hmm. them, right? But the point is, again, poverty is this policy choice, whether it's here or anywhere else. When we do have success, like with this uh, child tax benefit or you guys just giving money, it's important that we learn how to most effectively tell stories about that progress because if anything else, it increases the number of people who are just giving money to give directly to give it away. I wonder how much you guys, and, 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 and Tati, I know this isn't your specific job, but how much you focus on this, this uh, mission of what you do and why you do it and how you, for lack of a better word, sell it. 
how you mark change and how you tell stories about that to increase the overall effectiveness of what you do. Does that make sense or am I doing rambling again? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a good meta question and it's something we ask ourselves a lot. It's, it's hard. Sure. Um, because for anything you can dream that a recipient done, I can assure you I can find one at this point that has done it. What we have done is we have launched a site called live.givedirectly.com, which actually shows a live feed of recipient stories, but not in our words, in those recipient words. And I think it is fascinating. It's got a search bar. Search for your favorite, whatever you want, bed, um, alcohol, whatever word you want. And you could hear it in their words. And I think one of the reasons why it's been hard often for stories to break out is that for a long time, the stories have not been the recipient stories. They have been stories told by donor agencies. Uh, and I'll give one story that I heard. Uh, an NGO had on their website something that said, you know, for 30 cents, you can save a life. Um, 30 cents just doesn't seem like much money. How do we get to 30 cents? How do we get this story? Sure. Well, I looked at the other NGOs and that's what they had on their website. <laughs> And I hate to be this cynical, but we've often told the stories that donors want to hear. And even when I go to a village, and Teti, I'm curious, I'm sure you've had the same experience. You ask people, what'd you do? Everyone sort of starts with what they think you want to mm -hmm. hear. Oh, I started a vegetable stand and my life is completely different. Sure. I said, no, no, okay, you don't need to tell me that story. I've, I've heard that story a few times. Yeah. Like, what did, what, what'd you really do? And, you know, I, I put a tin roof over my head. Tin roof. Why did you put a tin roof? You know, there, there's a bit of a Western, Western judgmental side thinks is the tin roof, the kind of Kenyan equivalent of the marble bathroom in uptown Manhattan. Is this just a, um, but then you hear the story and say, well, actually I can collect clean water from the tin roof. So I don't need to walk a mile to collect it every day. And it turns out the tin roof doesn't fall down twice a year. So I don't need to spend all this money replacing mm -hmm. it. Um, but you know what's most important to me? So, well, I don't have to watch my children get rained on every night. And there's no metric for that. But that's often the most powerful. And if there's anything that just speaks to the decency importance in getting people to a standard, not watching your children huddled up getting rained on because you bought a tin roof underscores that so deeply to me. Yeah. 
structures. They can show you corn plantation. They can show you um, maybe a, a, a water pan that they've dug. They can show you, um, you know, physical things. We cannot show you human beings and point to them that those are the people we sent money. They have to speak for you to know it actually worked. We have to tell their story. Every day of our work, there's no better way of us telling, uh, talking about the work that we do, except for letting the recipients themselves say it. And I think each and every day, we look for the most innovative ways to get them as close as possible to speaking to the people who want to hear their story more than us telling the story. So Michael just talked about GD Live. Um, you know, we have brought donors down to come and find firsthand experience talking to these recipients. You know, we have recipients who speak English who can come to platforms such as this and we can facilitate them and ask them, come and speak to someone who wants to hear what this means to you. And that is so powerful. If we were to start telling the story of our recipients, each and every day, there's a new story. When I was coming to this podcast, we had a list of stories that you know, we've heard and we thought this would be a very good story to share. Until I got here today and I was asking the teams that came from the other side of town and I'm like, what's happening that side of town? What have you heard? And they tell me about this old man who got the transfer from Give Directly, 50, uh, $550. And in his own mind and choice, he bought a machine that hatches eggs. And he says he's hatching like a hundred eggs every week. Somebody sitting somewhere, one could never choose for him that as a project. Two may think that because he's living in poverty in a rural interior part of Kenya, he might not have an idea such as that hatchery. Or that he may not be able to manage it because it might be too complicated a technology, he might not have electricity, but they have their innovative ways of turning things around. To the story of housing that Michael has just talked about, having a tin-roofed house is, is, a, is, is an achievement here, but you will come and find that so many people have built tin-roofed houses. But if you went through their stories, each of them has a different motivation for why that roof is most important to them. Um, there's a story of like three women that I spoke to at one point when, you know, I was asking myself, tin-roofed houses, why are so many people building tin-roofed houses? I need to speak to some people to just hear their story. And I chose three women. One woman told me, for her, building a tin roof meant security for her daughters because she was fearing um, about sexual assault. And you know that out here, there are people who have put a lot of programs to protect girls from sexual assault. Good job. But nobody will tell you that we are going to build your house so that you can protect your daughters from being assaulted sexually. For another woman, for her, a house meant that for her sixth birth, sixth birth so she's a, she was a mother of five, and she said, for all my five children, anytime I wanted to deliver, and it's home birth, anytime I wanted to deliver a child, I have to go and beg for a house from my neighbor 
I am tired of begging. I am embarrassed of begging. Today, I have found a relief. A house where I am going to get privacy, a house where my child is going to be delivered in dignity. To a third woman, having a tin-roofed house meant that the years that she has spent in her marriage with her husband living in the state that they were living in and being a polygamous man, three women, they were forced to live in the same house. For anybody listening to that or watching that woman, you would assume that what a loving husband. Wow, what loving women these are. What a peaceful family. These women, they can live together in the same house. Of course, living in one house as co-wives is such a difficult thing. For this woman, mm. a tin roof was a liberation. She says, this marriage has been a bondage. I've never had privacy. I've never had independence. I have never had to choose even what to eat because we have to eat the same thing because we're in the same house. A tin roof is liberation for me. When people make decisions about their lives, they know which part of the shoe that pinches most they are easing. Each person needs a solution for their problems. And these stories are so many queen, we can't tell all of them, but most important, when you get the recipients themselves to talk about them, it's more liberating. Thank you for sharing that. It's just so illustrative of the fact that we each have, a, I mean, besides just the pure logistics of, like you said, we can't have water month and health, and health month and shelter month. And that's not, the way a, a, that's not the way a person works, much less a family unit, much less an extended family unit. But I come back to this, this word you used of um, of liberation, and again, not to not to just bring it back to the U.S., but I'm I'm trying to to think of how how broken things are here as well, and and coming back to thinking about I always try to get to the, this why, this why, and and part of this part of the American dream, right? That that doesn't necessarily exist for for most people, but is this idea of freedom and and liberty mm-hmm. right but we're so paternalistic to use a word that you guys used earlier which just applies to everything about america <laughs> about it's it's so contradictory because the idea of liberty and the idea of agency is is that you're in charge of your own mm-hmm. story but we're so paternalistic to everyone else about how they get to use that if they get to use it at all yeah. right Thank you for sharing those stories. It just it seems to be this universal thing where we don't trust each other to to handle our own our own our own business, our own liberation. And and yet when you hear these very personal, remarkable stories, you find out how much more powerful that really is when you have that agency. And I think it's been something that's been powerful in COVID. Sure. Right. So we we all want liberty, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yet when it comes to others, we're so naturally paternalistic. Mm-hmm. And I think there is this natural othering. That was the disaster in Goma. The volcano happened to those people in Goma. Or that was the time. And what happened in COVID is we had a disaster that happened to all of us. We were all part of it at some level or not. And I think it's not that surprising that cash became more popular in COVID. Because when you take a step back and say, wait a second, how would I want to be helped in a disaster? 
Would I want to open up a box of ragged teddy bears that someone else sent and maybe some canned Campbell's soup? Cheese? Like cheese? Teddy cheese? Yes, and really, really moldy cheese. Nobody cheesed. needs it. Nobody needs that who, cheese, Teddy. Who doesn't want moldy cheese? <laughs> or or do, I, do I want money? Because I may need to buy a new car. My neighbor may need to fix their house. And you saw a huge uptick in cash programs, right? So I think there's over 150 new cash programs started around the world during COVID. We got to a level where about 15% of the world population was getting a cash program. Now, some of that is certainly necessity, right? Cash, digital cash, which is what we do, is operationally quite convenient when you can visit people. Sure. Because I can sit here in a desk in New York and send digital money to someone in a refugee settlement. Mm -hmm. I don't need to go visit them, sure. per se. And it's also scalable. And that's, I think, what the operational bit is one of the reasons why, but I also think there is something about that there is something de-othering about the COVID crisis. But I, I, yeah, I just, I keep coming back to this idea of like giving people the power to do that thing, because if you want to be individualistic about it, let's, let's go all the way. Let's, let's let them do that then. And we refuse to do it. And it seems like that is a, again, with good intent, somebody might be building all the wells in the world, but that nobody, they might not need a well this month. They might need tampons. Or... Well, that's, um, it, it, it's funny that you bring that up because that actually also reminds me of a story. But quick, going back a second, I'm glad you brought it up. It's an important point, which is cash is not going to solve everything. There are structural problems. Cash does not, I think this is your example, it does not pave roads. Uh, cash does not discover vaccines. Cash does not provide national defense, right? There are a lot of things that you require coordination. Mm -hmm. Public goods are important. Um, but there's a lot of ways for these individual type interventions that still sure, exist, which sure. can be replaced by cash. All right. We know how well your programs work. We know how it works. To focus on you two for a minute, because I always want to get to this point of, it's a less measurable question, of course. And, and Teti, maybe we can start with you here. Why, why do it? Why does it matter so much to you to do this specific form of work? of support and even more specifically what you do within the organization. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I think, um, um, you know, I have, I have three phases of responses to, to that answer. And uh, the first phase is I have learned. And I have learned out of the work that I have done elsewhere. I have been in the aid sector 16 years now I have implemented programs of different kinds. And, you know, I can tell you this for free. As I worked in different organizations, missions moved me differently. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm a very value-driven person. And I remember there's this organization that I worked in and five months later, I left. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I have changed jobs. But today I can tell you, if somebody gave me an option to go elsewhere from Give Directly, I don't think I will fit well, because I have not yet figured where that place is. And this is, that I'm is so telling good. you this from the bottom of my head. It's five years. Yeah, it's five years. And I can do another five years. One time I asked my husband, how do you stay on, in one organization for 11 years? You don't get bored. Today I want to stay more. I want to stay even 20 years. It's when you see 
that you have spent so many years doing the wrong thing. And one day you realize, oh my God, if I had spent all those years doing this specific thing, I would get this inner motivation as a person. But even more important is that when I go back to the communities, and this is why I love talking to recipients, and that's my second point, that I have learned so much from the communities. You don't have to write it in an encyclopedia. A 70-year-old woman told me, were you angels or was it God? Because I don't understand how a beautiful organization like yours with a beautiful program selected my village in the middle of nowhere. People have come here, but I have never seen anybody come with anything like, for her, she looked at us like angels dropping down from the heavens. And you know, it, for me, it was not so much about what she saw. It was me now asking myself, what is that I've been doing? Why hasn't somebody ever told me that I was an angel? Why won't what those other programs I was doing, they just considered it that NGO that came here. That NGO, I don't want to mention names, but they would call those organizations by their names. They would call the interventions that they brought that water belongs to this NGO. That well belongs to this NGO. That school belongs to this NGO. Nobody has ever called Give Directly's money belonging to Give Directly. That NGO that brought us money, and they have never asked us that you know I made a mistake when I used your money like this. But you will go back to these villages and they will tell you, but they came and they sunk latrines here, the pit latrines, the toilets. They have never come back to make it again. Nobody asks you that about cash because they make personal decisions about what they do with the money. Why do I believe in what I am doing? Because I have seen the journey of poverty and I know how difficult that journey can be. And when you hear people say the things that they have done after realizing the power of money, let me tell you, Queen, in some of these communities, there are people who don't even know the power of money. They live each day as it comes. If it comes with hunger, that's it. If it comes with goodies, that's it. If it comes with money, that's it. And most of the time, it's somebody else's money directed to be used in another way. It has given me the conviction that, you know what? If we were to have life longer today, we should do more of this. We should touch more people's lives because I know when we do it here, tomorrow when I am not there, somebody will tell the story of the right thing to be done a child who was educated with Give Directly's money tomorrow will be a champion for the right programming for his community or her community when Michael and myself will not be here. That's it. It's you're 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 empowering people. Some people don't even know the the power of what you're giving them the ability to to do yet, and you can't really do that. Again, there's well-meaning people and organizations the world over, but. You can't really do that with a well you don't revisit or latrines that nobody comes back to. Or, but if someone is, if somebody is hatching a hundred eggs a week, you do the secondary math, you know, called second order effects of it's not just those hundred eggs a week, or it's not just the tin roof. But where does it go from there? Like, what what does it do? What does it do to children when they don't have to huddle under the rain anymore? 
what does that mean next week, in a month, in a year, in a couple of years, just because you gave them some digital cash? And you, you, you're not in control of that. They're in control of that. And that's a totally different ballgame. Michael, what about you? Why, why, why this specific thing? And, and your answer cannot be because it works. <laughs> I know that. I know that already. Well, my, 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 uh, unlike Tetty, my story is incredibly boring. I grew up public school teacher, parents, public school growing up. Um, I hadn't left the country uh, until I was in college and really saw poverty for the first time on a trip to Ecuador. What pulled me to poverty was a few things. One is the magnitude of the problem is great. I think it's one of the kind of great crimes of humanity right now that there are a billion people living in extreme poverty. So it's hard not to be drawn to that as one of the big problems facing our generation. But the thing about focusing on poverty was it did feel so addressable. You could see it at the individual level. You, you can sit with someone in poverty and you can help them uh, escape poverty. And I'm an impatient person uh, and, I, and I like seeing results quickly. And to be able to see that impact forces you to think about what could you do. Uh, for seeing that impact at the individual level forces you to ask the question at a global level. And, and what you realize quickly is that this is a finite problem. Um, every person you take out of poverty is one less mm -hmm. person in poverty. And it's tautological to say that, but it's really important to realize like we could count down to the end of poverty mm -hmm. and should be doing that. And once you realize that, it's hard not to focus on that opportunity. Now, I was also in some ways kind of at the right confluence of things. So I happened to be doing a PhD at a time when academics first started studying what worked mm -hmm. in poverty reduction. Mm -hmm. And it turned out a lot of what we thought worked didn't work, giving people money did work. And it, the second part was the mobile money revolution, right? The ability to send money directly to someone's phone is something relatively new. That didn't exist um, before the kind of mid-2000s. Sending physical dollar bills across oceans is not easy and turns out easy to get robbed, easy to lose money, easy to get it wrong. So you have these two threads one, the evidence, two, the technology that actually mm -hmm. makes this possible for the first time. And it just seemed tremendously obvious to do. Well, there's something about that conflux of you're not going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you tried to be a teacher. You got to do some travel. You are a public school kid. So, so uh, I'm, I'm a huge believer that there's, there's something very fundamental, especially in the formative years, about being exposed and, and exposing yourself uh, to to such a different stratification mm -hmm. of of life um, wh wherever you might be, but th there's something so compelling about that conflict. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. There's a there's a writer, an environmental writer for Bloomberg Green, which is their sort of climate focused section, uh, who I've had on the show a couple times. Just brilliant gentleman named Akshat Rathi, and he had this tweet a couple weeks ago that was essentially where he realized our age. And I'm I'm 38, I think, going on 90, and and that if if we need to decarbonize, you know, as soon as possible, but definitely by this 2050 number. Oh, then if I'm this age, like that is the work of my lifetime. Mm. Yeah. And while we needed to start so many of these things decades ago, when when we knew, when Exxon already knew, and all these places, there are some things that are available to yeah. us now that weren't before. 
things like give directly, like you said, it is not advantageous to try to ship buckets of cash over over literally on boats and in planes. Mm. Uh, but but these mm. networks that exist and these cheap mobile phones that exist to be able to do it uh, on the continent of Africa, which which probably has a higher prevalence than it does in America at this point, um, you know, is is now. And so if you're someone that can understand that and speak to that and and, and that use that data that works, mm. you almost have to do it, don't you? Yeah, and it's an opportunity. And if there's anything people take away, you you individually, may, not you, Quinn, but any of us individually are not going to end poverty, but you can do mm-hmm. that for one person. Like mm-hmm. go sure. donate the $32 or whatever it is a month to one person. And that's it. And, and then get one or two of your friends to do the same. And maybe if there's just enough of us to do that, we can end poverty in our lifetime. And like you said, mm-hmm. man, and, and maybe it's just the way specific people are built, but I'm, I'm the way you are. And this is why I love, this is horrible. This is why I like doing dishes <laughs> because there's a stack of dishes. And at Me the too. end, there's no dishes and <laughs> I can do, I can, I can do this thing. And you said this, this, this poverty problem, because it is a choice wherever we are and because it is so functional uh, and measurable, you can look at this number and go, oh, I can I can. I have the opportunity to make that go down and get all these stories that Teti is telling us. But just it's like this reinforcing flywheel of I'm making this this measurable number go down. But we're getting these stories and what else is out there? And you just you 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 have to do that, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, in in an organization like uh, Give Directly, and, and we talked about the job board a little bit, but but in general, sort of a brief overview. What, what roles exist in an organization like yours in 2021 and for the next five, 10 years? And I guess, where are you looking to attract folks? What do you need or, or what are the things you don't know you need yet? If you can mm-hmm. fill oh, that in. Everywhere. If you're talented and you care, I'm almost sure there's a role for you <laughs> and, and we'll help you navigate it. Sure. I mean, we've got over 500 people now. I wow. forget how many jobs are posted That's incredible. online. And it's everything from someone in Liberia helping deliver cash to someone on Teti's team helping audit the fact that it's an honest um, process, an effective process, to people help kind of raising the word on the growth side, whether it's talking to individual donors or help building the websites and apps that are going to help us attract people, to the engineers and data specialists that make sure we're targeting the right mm. people and that we're keeping track of everything to make sure we know exactly where your money is and can track it along the way. But that just gives you a sense of the range of of folks on our team. We have a very open organization and we know that our horizon is not exhausted yet. So as we Mm -hmm. continue to serve people who need our services most, we know that the terrain is going to adjust and change in different ways. You never know. We may just need new caliber of people. So I think visiting our job postings, visiting our website will mm-hmm. be a, the best way for people to catch up with what's next on the radar for Give Directly. There are things, there are roles we did not have five years ago. I think that's so helpful because I've talked about a lot and I, know, I think this is how I, I, I've sort of where the, 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 at least this job board focus kind of came from, which is certainly nothing unique. It's just our, our prism of how we're framing these things is, but we just get this question, whether it's climate or COVID, especially in the past year, or, or it's black maternal health in the U S or whatever it might be. People just go, they, they hear, they start, 
whether you've ignored a large systemic problem because you d don't have that lived experience mm -hmm. or you've just started to heard of it, whatever, at some point you get to this point of, or they listen to this and they listen to, no offense, Michael, but they listen to Tetti tell these stories and they go, what can I do? And when you say, if you're, if you're smart and you care, we'll find a place for you. That's the equivalent of when I go to people and say, well, what can you do, Michael? Mm -hmm. You know, like, what do you give a shit yeah. about? What are you good at? What were you interested in in grade school or or what drives you on a humanities level? Um, because we need all we, we need all of it, you know, on the grander scale, but especially at a place like give directly, like you said, from, you know, purely auditing to technology to yeah. organizational to remote stuff around the ground. And I think that's attractive uh, to folks as they try to find their place in it. If And everyone has a role to play. Right. And maybe, maybe there's not a job. Maybe have your friends over for dinner and talk about giving people money <laughs> to make them less poor. I can promise you it'll be an interesting dinner conversation. Sure. And at least one person will raise the possibility they'll just drink the money. Follow us uh, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Share a story or two with someone that may not know as much mm -hmm. about what's happening. Uh, you can do small things and they all matter. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the two places for folks to go are, is it givedirectly.org? And then what was the other one? Was it live.givedirectly for the stories? Live.givedirectly.org or follow us at givedirectly. Okay, mm -hmm. that's awesome. That's that's super helpful. Well, I have kept you for just an enormous part of your day. Um, Tati, you're on this beautiful retreat and it's got to be almost 10 o'clock at night there. I apologize. <laughs> um, but I cannot thank you both enough uh, for not just your time here, but obviously for everything you're doing to empower people who are unjustly below the poverty line as we define it to empower themselves to 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 do what they need to do to take care of themselves uh which is about as powerful as it gets so thank you so much thank you for doing it for so impactfully and efficiently and for sharing your stories of of the organization and, and why you do it i i think folks are going to really be very heartened by by what's possible that's very kind, Quinn, and thanks for doing what you do. It's uh, it's it's so important to just get the word out there and open these conversations. So least we can do. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on, thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. And that was episode 116 of Important Not Important, called What Happens When We Just Give People Money. 
My thanks to Quinn Emmett and the folks at Important Not Important for letting us feature this episode. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games.